Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. Have you ever had just one of those days? You know the ones where almost nothing seems to go right or where it seems like everyone and everything in the universe is out to get you? Ever have one of those days? Yeah? You know, it's the kind of day that starts with surprise sour milk in your breakfast cereal. The kind of day that that ends with a flat tire on the highway during rush hour on the way home from work and your car jack is missing because your kids use it for their bike ramp. And then when you finally get home hours later, you stop to get the mail and your mail key breaks off in the lock. Ever just have one of those kinds of days? And I know some of you are thinking, days? Ever have one of those days? How about decades, preacher man? Ever have one of those decades? Ever have one of those lives? Maybe some of you are having one of those days already this morning. You don't know this, but uh, quite often we pastors watch you come into church every Sunday. And um, we have a little game we played it's, it, we, that we play. It's called Guess Who Had an Argument in the Car This Morning on the Way to Church Game. And it's not a hard game to play. She's walking across the parking lot way ahead of him. What do you think, George? Right? Yeah. He's avoiding, like the plague, any eye contact with her in the church lobby. And when they usually sit next to each other in church, suddenly the kids are in between them. You think we don't notice these things? Okay, now I'm curious. We're all family here, so let's have it. Who had an argument in the car on the way to church this morning? And we'll admit it. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, everybody looked at each other, you know? Well, we'll pray for your ride home. Don't, don't you hate Sunday morning ride to church arguments? I mean, they're almost surreal, Right? Sometimes the arguments, you know, getting your kids in the car. Go to church now and we're going to love Jesus. Get in the car. <laughs> All the way to church. And then you come in here and within minutes, I love you, Lord. It's bizarre, isn't it? Please, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, where our friend Paul is in the midst of one of those days. Acts chapter 23. In fact, Paul's about to finish off three of the worst days in a row we might possibly imagine. Consider day one, which we talked about a few weeks ago. If Paul kept a diary, the day one entry would go something like this. Dear Diary. Today I went to the temple and people tried to kill me. Ever have someone try to kill you at church? And then I was arrested, taken into Roman custody, and strapped up to be flogged. One of those days. 
And then the next day, day two, dear diary, today I went to the Sanhedrin, someone hit me in the face, and then I was almost torn to pieces before going back into Roman custody. I mean, Paul's having those days here in Acts. And this morning, we get to day three. Your Bibles are open to Acts 23, and I'll begin reading at verse 12. Acts 23, verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Well, that's just great. More than 40 men, interesting detail of 40, when you see 40 in the text, it almost always symbolizes a time of testing or training or pressing or equipping. Maybe that's why Luke bothers to tell us how many. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders, the rulers of Israel, at least the Jews, and said to the the rulers, this tells you how corrupt the rulership was, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext, that means on the pretend, on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case, we're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man, you see that he's young several times through here, probably just a boy, probably not even 12. You wouldn't be called necessarily young man unless you were a boy. There are some clues here that he's very young. Maybe it's how he found out about the plot. Kids are good at kind of sneaking around and overhearing things. Have you ever noticed? I don't know that these hard-nosed Jews planning, you know, knew that a kid was in the alley hearing the plan. God knew, though, didn't he? God uses a kid again. It's relentless how often he does. Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said... To the commander, Paul, the prisoner, as opposed to all the other Pauls they had in custody, I guess. Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And here's another clue. You can see how young the young person is, can't you? The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, because this young man, his eyes got to be about this big now, right? Here's the commander, leader of a thousand Romans. Here's this little Jewish kid. It's like, oh, great. This big, important Roman commander takes the time to take him by the hand, drew him aside, took him, just the two of them. I picture maybe getting down on his knee. I don't know. What is it you want to tell me? He said, Paul's nephew, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them. Because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you reported this to me. 
Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, maybe um, slingshot there, to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. The guy orders 470 of Rome's finest to assemble. That's nearly half of the entire contingent he had at Antonia. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Is that exactly how it went down? Those of you who remember the... No... When does the commander find out that Paul was a Roman citizen? As he strapped him up to flog him. So there's a little cover his behind going on here with Claudius Lysus. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. It's about halfway. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter, and now the governor has to decide whether he has jurisdiction to hear the case. That's what this next part is all about. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Cilicia was within Felix's jurisdiction to hear the case. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Now, that's quite a culmination to Paul's last three days in Jerusalem, and they are indeed his last there. Paul will never again return to Jerusalem. It's been quite a whirlwind trip. He's been there about 12 days total. Quite a combination to Paul's last three days in Jerusalem, running for his life under an armed escort to Caesarea under the cover of darkness. And so it's one of those times, at least in Paul's story, that many, me included, maybe you too, that we might begin to wonder, even marvel at, what in the world keeps Paul going here? What keeps Paul going when he has one of those days? And I don't know about you, but I'm very interested in that question, the answer to that question, because whatever it is that keeps Paul going, don't we wish we could get some of that? Don't we wish we had it too to help us keep going when we're having one of those days, one of those sour milk stretches in life? See, if I'm Paul, I start to get a little paranoid here. I wonder what he's thinking about the next day, day four tomorrow morning. Who's going to try to kill me tomorrow? Governor Felix? 
I start to get a little paranoid if I'm Paul and, and scared. I start battling discouragement, depression, anxiety, and, and more of those wonderfully debilitating demons. <laughs> I start to get a little paranoid. I might even start reciting under my breath the little paranoia poem. Have you heard it? It's a pretty old joke, and it's teacher humor, so brace yourself. Teacher humor means it's so bad it's good, maybe. <laughs> and the paranoia poem goes like this. Have you heard it? Roses are red, violets are blue, I am paranoid, and so am I. <laughs> and remember, just because you are paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Yes, I know, there's a double negative to work through there. Stick with it. If you get it before the ride home from church, you can laugh instead of argue. <laughs> and here it seems just about everyone's out to get Paul. He's got to feel that, doesn't he? And yet, there's this confidence in Paul. There's this relentless, dogged perseverance. There's this confident perseverance that marks his life here. Even as he gets nearer and nearer to the end of the race, God asks him to run. And I think knowing he's getting near that end, oh, how I want that. Even when it feels like, especially when it feels like everyone is out to get me. Well, how does he do it? What maintains Paul here? What keeps his confident perseverance Confident and persevering. Why doesn't he just give up? What keeps Paul going even when so many keep trying to kill him? I suppose there are several ways to answer that question among them. Well, Paul's got God. Paul's got Jesus. Paul's got the Holy Spirit. And amen to each and every one of those reasons. God certainly keeps Paul going. But can we explore that a little bit more? There's an old Baptist saying from the Deep South. Its earliest origins are a bit obscure, but as near as I can tell in researching it, it's a saying first made famous by a preacher named Gordon Cosby, a former World War II chaplain. Cosby was preaching on what it means to be called by God. And in talking about call and describing what it's like to be called by God into certain tasks like Paul was, when describing someone who is called, Cosby said that a call is when we are seized by the power of a great affection. When we say yes to God's call, we do so because we are seized. I love that verb in this context. We are seized by the power of a great affection. And so seized in our seized state... We are not people who understand God's call as a mandate to some burdensome, tiresome obligation. Rather, we live in the mystery, and it is indeed a mystery, isn't it? We live in the mystery of Christ's teaching that while He carried the cross, His yoke, He said, is easy and His burden light. How can that be? Is it because Christ too 
was seized by the power of a great affection that saw him through even his worst days. I think what keeps Paul going through days like these is that Paul is seized by the power of a great affection. What great affection, you might ask? Well, in short, it's the love of God. Both the love of God for him, Paul, and his love of God in return. He's seized by the power of God's love. And I know of no power as potent as the love of God. And I think Paul is seized by the power of God's love. My brothers, Paul relentlessly calls those against him. He loves them, even though they're against him. And the only way he can do that, the only way I can imagine reaching out to someone and calling them and pleading with them out of love, oh, my brothers, the only way I can imagine Paul is because he is seized by the power of God's love. Not only for him, Paul, but the power of God's deep love for everyone, including those against Paul. John three sixteen and 17 captures this love of God quite well. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Do we love the world like that? Do we love the world like God does? Let me ask you this. If your husband or wife or brother, or sister, or best friend in all the world is dying, and you can somehow help, what wouldn't you do to save their life? What wouldn't you do? Well, we'd do everything we could, right? Harder question. What if it wasn't a spouse or a friend, but a complete stranger? Is our answer different? What if it was someone trying to kill you or out to destroy you or ruin your reputation? Is our answer different? See, the answer isn't different for God. He loves everyone and does everything He can to save them all. Are we seized by the power of that great affection for the world? I think Paul is. And that's what keeps him going. His love of God and love of others. It keeps coming down to that. Even those, especially those, trying to kill him. And let's lay aside any attempt at humor for a minute. Sour milk, flat tires, broken keys, and Sunday morning arguments are one thing. What about the day, what about the day you learn you have cancer? What sees you through that day? Or the day your dad dies? How do you persevere through that day? Or the day those in your own 
family, immediate or in ministry, turn against you and seek to ruin you, how do you keep going? I think the answer to those questions, and many, many more like them, all of them like them, are one and the same. The answer is one and the same. The only way you'll truly keep going is if you are seized by the power of God's love. Recently, as many of you know, we lost a father and grandfather. Jill's dad died. And I'll tell you, I don't know how we could make it. I don't know that we would be making it without being seized by God's love. I wouldn't be standing before you this morning, right now, I can tell you that. But with God's love, with God's love, we can do this together. We can do anything with God's love. We can do any circumstance of life. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And how does He strengthen us? Well, one way, one chief foundational way, isn't it, is through His love. Through His love, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Hmm, Paul wrote that. Sometime after this experience in Jerusalem, go figure. I wonder if it was on his mind when he wrote his letters to the his letter to the Philippian church. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I wonder if the midnight ride from Jerusalem to Caesarea was on his mind. And if you're at all like me, you might be thinking, well, you know, Pastor, that sounds great, but what if I'm just not seized by the power of God's love? I want to be, but I'm not. What then? If that's you, would you consider reflecting on a few questions with me? There are more, but these three came to my heart this week. First question, if, if we're just not feeling it, just not feeling God's seizing love, First question, how much time do we spend with God? How much time do you really spend with God? If the answer is not much, how do you suppose we'll be impacted, moved by God's love if we don't spend much time with Him? Or how about this question, if you're just not feeling seized by God's love? Do we truly appreciate the, the importance of that cross? Do we truly appreciate the love that that took? The love poured out by God Himself on the cross? And if we're not feeling the power of God's love for the world, how about this question? How much time do we spend trying to empathize with rather than condemning people? I'll give you a wild example. I'm hoping its wildness helps emphasize the point. Let's play word association. Not out loud, unless you want to. 
<laughs> Otherwise, just to yourself, fill in the blank for me. I say, Osama bin Laden. And you say, Oh, I'd love to do a poll. Did any of us put in that blank, made in the image of God? He is. Did any of us say, loved by God? He is. Or does anyone, when they think of bin Laden, at least also think, the poor man, he is so confused. How awful. How awful to be so brainwashed from birth to be in such a terribly confused place. See, if we can't empathize with even those who are against us, how will we be seized with the power of God's love for them as Paul was seized by the power of God's love for even those trying to kill him? Paul is seized by the power of a great affection, the power of God's love. It keeps him going. His love of God and others drives him, even through dark valleys, even through the most painful of days. If we would ask Paul, I would suspect one day, Paul, they kept coming after you and you kept... What was that all about? I wonder if his eyes wouldn't tear up and he wouldn't just... Uh, I love them! What wouldn't you do for someone that you love? Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you discouraged in your Christian walk and witness because lots of days seem like one of those days? You know, in a way, we're called to one of those days, one of those lives. If you're tired, weary, or discouraged, reach for love. Strain toward her. Spend time with God. Spend time contemplating the cross and realize that but for the grace of God, we're hopelessly lost. And if your days like these involve someone else, try and spend some time separating the sin from the sinner. Empathizing with them rather than condemning them. It's the only way you'll truly persevere through it all. Allow yourself to be seized by the power of God's love and God's love will see you through. So help us God. And you know, even in the midst of those days, being seized by God's love has its rewards. Even nighttime visits from Jesus, whispering encouragement. Paul got that the night before our story this morning, remember? 
God constantly whispers encouraging words in so many ways and through so many people. Maybe from time to time, maybe from time to time, we even get a Roman escort out of trouble. 470 Roman soldiers rumbling through Samaria through the night to the coast. Can you picture it? Wow. I wonder what Paul was thinking. I wonder if at all through that mad dash in the night, surrounded by 470 of Rome's finest, I wonder if there wasn't at least a a rueful smile on Paul's face. Or maybe even a chuckle at what was going on. I mean, who'd have thunk? He must have thunk. God's grace, even through a bunch of Romans. (laughs) How many times did he look up at that ride while hanging on to the... Could have been a donkey or we don't know. But (laughs) what are you doing now? Speaking of saving Roman escorts, tonight we have a chance to rescue people from bondage. Those opportunities don't come along very often. If you want to join a group of people, if you want to join a woman who has clearly been seized by the power of a great affection, won't you come tonight and ask how you can help? They've tried to make it as fun and as interesting as possible with a silent auction, and those things are fun. But you know... You wouldn't even need those things, I wouldn't think, if we were truly seized by a power of a great affection for those kids. Do we care? In a minute, we'll gather around the Lord's table for communion. Here's another way to open ourselves to being seized by the power of God's great affection for us and for the world as we gather around the Lord's table and we remember and in a way experience again what God did for us out of love. And every time we do it, it's an invitation to join in, to be seized by that same love. So help us God. I've asked, um, I've asked Craig to come up to teach us a little chorus that I came across this week. It captures, I think, what it means to be seized by the power of God's love, and then from there we'll have our time at the Lord's table. Well, I know occasionally when I teach you something new, you think, he's been working on that for weeks, how are we going to learn it? Well, I just learned this one yesterday afternoon, so don't be intimidated. We're kind of learning it together even though I've sung it a few times. I'm going to teach you the chorus, and then I'll sing the uh, verses. It's like this. I've been seized by the power of your great affection, taken captive by the size and scope of your amazing love. Incapacitated that you send in my direction You fill me up with your huge love Like a hand inside a glove Goes by quick, but it's pretty easy You can try it with me I've been seized I've been 
benediction, His good words, His blessing. May God seize you with the power of His great affection as you run with perseverance the race set before you wherever it may go. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace.